Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 306 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from Austin, Texas, and I'm excited to be with you today. Today, I'm going to talk about a topic that I talk about a lot, but perhaps I don't always give you the reasons why, the justifications for why I say this, and I think it lives out there in all my various episodes, but I wanted to put it in one place so you have one thing to point to to remind yourself of this fundamental principle of training and also to point your friends to. So we're going to talk about the why behind running slow. The why behind running slow, or better put, the why behind running easy most of the time so that you can ultimately be your fastest running self. On last week's episode, I talked about eight things to stop doing. Point number one on that list was stop going too fast on your easy days. And I can't stress enough the importance of that to you reaching your running potential. But I didn't as much talk about what that does for you, why that gives you the power to then run faster than ever on your workouts and well as well on race day. So we're going to dig into that today will be a little bit shorter than normal episode because it's not, frankly, that complicated, but I'm going to give you the reasons. I'm going to give you some rules of thumb. I'm going to give you some things to avoid just to make sure that you're doing this the right way. Before I get there, quickly, I don't have any sponsors for this episode, but I do want to remind you, if you haven't already, to go out and buy Daz and Kara's books. They're coming out soon. Kara's book, The Longest Race, is coming out on March 14th here in just over two weeks. And Des's book will come out right before Boston on April 4th. Her book, Choosing to Run, is amazing as well. I've had the opportunity to pre-read both of them. Kara's book is the story of her life with a particular focus on all the things that happened to her with the Nike Oregon Project. She reveals some things in the book that she's never shared publicly, but her book is really a story of resilience and how you can stand up to those doing wrong and not only create a better life for yourself by doing that, but also create a better situation for others. And I think we can all agree that her accomplishments on the road and the track have been amazing, but I can guarantee you that what she's been able to do off the track And the way she's been able to stand up against people doing wrong has more impact and is more inspirational and powerful than anything she's ever done on the track or on the road. The book is at times heavy and emotional, but really, really good, really, really inspirational. And I think will give you all the inspiration you need to face down anything hard you might face in life. And then, Daz's book ultimately tells the story of the 2018 Boston win where she shares some things in the buildup to that in late 2017 and in 2018, early 2018 that she's never shared in terms of some of the challenges she was facing that led into that race. She also, that's the envelope for the storytelling and she weaves in chapters every third or fourth chapter or so with backstory on the 2018 race. And then she weaves into that vignettes on her life that tell you the background of her growing up, getting into running, her career, 
and it's all woven together with the Boston 2018 race storytelling in a way that's just really beautifully done. You get lots of behind-the-scenes vignettes, too, on the race itself that are really, really cool, and it's the type of book that'll make you want to run through a brick wall. It just It's so, so inspiring, and will make you want to go out and absolutely smash whatever goals you might be facing. So get both of those books. If you buy them on pre-sale, it helps them with their rankings when the New York Times listings come out and things like that, which ultimately helps them get eyes on the book as well as encourage their publishers to invest more in getting the book out there as well. So it's important to pre-order if you're so inclined and if you have the ability because it will help them. And I promise you won't be disappointed to have either of those books on your shelf. So had to plug those two. And by the way, coming out on launch day, March 14th for Kara's book, the episode of Nobody Asked Us with Des and Kara that will be released that day will actually be an interview. Des interviewing Kara about her book. So you'll want to stay tuned for that coming up on a podcast near you. And of course, check out their podcast. Nobody asked us if you haven't already, because it's, it's awesome. And I've gotten to help out with it behind the scenes to get that launched. All right, let's jump into my main topic. We're going to talk about the why behind slowing down. It's, as I talked about on last week's episode, it's one of those things, one of those counterintuitive things that people really have struggle grasping is this idea that you have to slow down in order to get faster. And I've said it, if I said it once, I've said it a thousand times and I'll say it a thousand more that there's perhaps nothing more important to you reaching your max potential in the sport than embracing this principle. And while I talk about it a lot, I don't often or as much talk about holistically the whys behind why this matters, what it does for you so that you can wrap your brain around it, embrace it. Some people have to learn this one the hard way. Others embrace it more readily, but I promise you the quicker you can get there and embrace it, the more you will see results. That's a promise. Some people think when I talk about this that I'm somehow babying them or I think they can't handle, quote, harder training. And so they're somehow trying to short circuit that if they run faster anyway, and that's going to be better for them, but just not the way it is. I tell you this principle ultimately because I'm very, very passionate about you getting your goals, period, the end, and the shortest path to getting your goals is by embracing this principle. So I'm going to give you all the reasons why today, and then talk about some things to consider and think about as you go about executing this principle to make sure that those easy days are as easy as they should be. But before I get to those four reasons, I want to first paint a couple of pictures for you that might help you embrace this before we talk about some of the technical elements. And I believe I've shared these analogies before, but here we go. We're going to share them in one place. First of all, if you think about this principle in the context of running I know it seems counterintuitive. Everybody wants to think naturally on the surface. Well, I have to run fast to get faster. So the faster I run all the time, the faster I'm going to be. That would seem to be the intuitive principle on the surface. But when you actually compare running to other 
exercise forms, then the principles aren't all that different. So one of the analogies or corollaries would be a better word that I like to draw for people is the corollary between running and strength training. For whatever reason, we don't have any problem when we go out and strength train embracing a concept like this in that world, in that if you're trying to improve your max bench press, for example, then most of the time you do lower weight, higher reps in preparation in many practice opportunities, in many strength sessions before, occasionally you go out and test your max bench press. So you might do six to 10 reps of a lower weight and often a significantly lower weight. And then occasionally you'll go out and bench press your max. And oftentimes that lower weight might be 60% of your max. So if you're trying to bench 100 pounds, you might do 60 pounds at higher reps, 6 to 8 to 10 reps in multiple sets done over time. And then occasionally you're going to go out and you're going to max. You're going to see, can I do that 100 pounds max one rep that I'm shooting for? We do that in strength. We don't question it. There is no difference in that and what we're doing with our running. Most of the time when we run, we're doing lower weight, i.e. lower pace, slower pace, most of the time with higher volume, i.e. more reps, more miles. And then occasionally we test our max by running a race or time trial in practice. It's the same concept. Lower intensity, higher volume, most of the time, and then occasionally we test our max. Exact same concept that we're using in strength training. We don't question it one bit in strength training. Imagine if you were trying to bench 100 pounds as your max bench press and you went to the gym every day and you tried to bench 100 pounds. Imagine what that would be like. It would be silly. People would laugh at you. You would laugh at yourself. You wouldn't improve in the same way than you would if you did 60 pounds, 8 to 10 reps, three sets, multiple times over time, and then ultimately tested your max. You wouldn't improve in the same way. And yet, in running, that's what we're doing all the time. We think the intuitive principle is to go try to run your, quote, max pace all the time in order to, quote, max out with that pace on race day. And that is just not how it works with our body, with our physiology. Strength training is a corollary. Please accept that corollary just as you would in the weight room, accept it out on the roads as well. So that's one story I will tell, one corollary that I think helps people wrap their head around this concept. The other analogy or metaphor, so to speak, that I like to use is a car analogy where the ultimate goal, if you're trying to build your aerobic engine, is to have an engine that's as big as possible, that has as many cylinders as possible, because the more cylinders you have in an engine, the faster it can ultimately go, the more power it can generate. Your small four-door sedans, if they're gas-powered, they're using typically a four-cylinder engine. 
the big engines that are pushing the big sports cars or might, or maybe big SUVs or whatever it may be, they're going to have eight, 10, sometimes even 12 cylinders. And here's a promise. 12 cylinder engine is going to beat a four cylinder engine every single time, (laughs) every single time. Won't even be close. And so the analogy to use here is how are we developing our engines? And to give you a picture of what it's like in car terms, in order to build the size of our engine, in order to add cylinders to the engine, that's done when we're running easy with more volume. We build aerobic capacity, i.e. engine size, when we run easy, when we run more at easy efforts. That's when we're adding cylinders. And that is the most important thing to developing a big engine. When we run fast, when we do tempo work, speed work, interval work, when we frankly go too fast on long runs or easy runs, that's when we're fine tuning our engine. That's when we're taking the engine that we have with the number of cylinders that it has and we're revving, we're revving it up, we're optimizing it, we're fine tuning it, we're tweaking the little things you tweak in an engine to get the most out of it given its size. That's where where speed work comes in. That's where the fast work comes in. And ultimately, you need both to get your best results. You want to build your engine size, and then you want to fine-tune it. You want to build your engine size, and then you want to fine-tune it. That's what we do when we periodize within a training block. We build size, then we fine-tune, then we race. Then we build size again, we fine-tune, and then we race. That's the sequence we're constantly going through. And ultimately, if you're doing it right over time, you're continuing to build the size of that engine and then you fine tune it right before race day so that you can get the most out of it. But what happens when people run too fast all the time on their easy days is they're constantly stuck with a really revved up four cylinder engine instead of giving themselves the space, the capacity, the time spent at easy efforts in order to go from four to six to eight to 10 to 12 cylinders. So as a result, you end up with this really revved up four cylinder. And sure, you can see progress for a time by fine tuning and revving up an engine given its size. But at some point, you plateau at that engine size. And for certain, as a part of that process, you never see what potential might exist by adding cylinders, by going to six to eight to 10 to 12. So you end up, Sure, maybe having some initial results, but then you plateau and you never sniff anywhere near your full potential. So if you're going to do this, do it the right way. Build cylinders, build your engine size by focusing on that easy running when you should. And then sure, fine tune too, because we need that in order to peak on race day. But it has to occur in sequence. And of course, you have to have the right mix of the two activities, engine building versus engine fine-tuning, so that you can ultimately reach your max potential. Hopefully, that analogy helps you. Do you want to be a revved-up four-cylinder, or do you want to be a V8, a V10, V12, because that's where the real speed, the real power, the real fun comes? So hopefully... Those two analogies or corollaries help you break the paradigm, break the intuition, 
block in your brain to really embrace this. But let's get to some more specifics on the reasons why we run slow. What does it do for us? How is it helping us add cylinders? I've got four things for you. Four things to keep in mind when you're running easy on your easy days. By the way, when I'm talking about easy days, I'm talking about medium long run days, talking about long run days, talking about recovery days, talking about any day where there's no speed work involved. And we'll talk a little bit later about how you differentiate between those if there are differentiations. But this is really any time you should be running easy, long, medium, long, recovery, any other easy run you might be doing. Four things that it does for you. Number one, it puts you in the right aerobic development zone in order to build aerobic capacity. That's the engine building space. You think about the aerobic system sort of like the musculoskeletal system where in your musculoskeletal system, you've got different parts of it, right? You've got your biceps, your triceps, your quads, your pecs, your traps, all the different components. And while there are certainly more components to the musculoskeletal system, your aerobic system also has different parts. You have that part that is what we call aerobic capacity or your global ability to process oxygen to your working muscles so that they can perform respiration as quickly as possible to help you go. That's a process performed by the mitochondria and your cells. And typically, oxygen is the limiting factor in the overall equation. And look, there are other processes involved. I get it. But we're focusing now just on that simple idea of you got to have oxygen to perform respiration to make you go. So you've got to take as many molecules from the air to your working muscles as you can. And that aerobic capacity building, which involves physiological changes from the inside out, is what's happening when you're running easy. And if you go too fast, then you get outside of that aerobic capacity building zone and you start to work other parts of the aerobic system that are more in that fine-tuning realm versus the engine building realm. So we've got to stay easy in order to stay in the right aerobic capacity building zone. I actually got an email from one of you that was, that was talking about imagining the physiological changes that are happening when running easy. And I like that idea because we don't ever get to see it, but there's some really cool things that happen when you run easy. One, your lung, your lung capacity improves. Your ability to pull oxygen into your body via your lungs improves. Additionally, your ability for your lungs to pass oxygen into your bloodstream improves. Your ability for your bloodstream to carry oxygen improves. You build capillaries, you actually build blood vessels into your working muscles to bring more oxygen to them. You add mitochondria to your cells. You actually increase your ability to perform respiration by giving your body more of those little micro engines, mitochondria, to do so. And you also improve the efficiency of the process of respiration within those mitochondria as a part of this aerobic capacity development. And so these physiological changes, which by the way, can happen over a period of 15 to 20 years with consistent aerobic capacity building work, 
all that's happening from the inside out. You can't see it, but it's happening in magical ways. One of the ways to kind of know this that I think is fascinating is that when you have a layoff from running, maybe you take two weeks, three weeks, sometimes it takes longer, four, five, six weeks off, and then you start again. Oftentimes when you do that, you'll have this itching sensation that might occur in your legs. Sometimes I get it in my stomach for whatever reason. And that itching sensation is actually blood vessels, capillaries that have gone dormant because you haven't been developing the aerobic system. They've gone dormant that are waking back up, that are getting blood pushed back into them. And it causes, causes your nerves to fire and causes an itching sensation that is really just a dormant part of your aerobic system waking back up. But that's a, a way, a sign, a physical sign of knowing that, hey, when I'm not doing this type of work, I don't need as many blood vessels. But when I am doing this work and doing it consistently, I get more capillaries. I improve my body's ability to pass oxygen to the working muscles. And all of that happens, all of that magic happens. And by the way, that's probably the number one thing that matters in getting faster. All that happens at easy efforts. So that's number one. Number two, the other thing that running easy on your easy days does is that it takes the pressure off the musculoskeletal system so that you can stay healthy and consistent. Aerobic capacity building is important, but consistent aerobic capacity building is even more important. So your ability to string together weeks and months and ultimately years and decades of consistent aerobic development is what's going to get you to reaching your max potential because Again, you can build aerobic aerobic system for 15, 20 years. So you can literally add cylinders to your engine for more than a decade, sometimes two decades of work. And at some level that can be overwhelming because you think, wow, that just seems like such a long time to invest in the sport. But to me, it's a hopeful message because it says that, hey, I can keep improving. I can keep seeing gains for that long. And oftentimes beyond that, because then you can start to work on other fine tuning elements like I'm doing. But it's a hopeful message because it means you have a long time to get better if you're consistent about it. But the only way to stay consistent is to go easy enough so that you're not taxing the neuromuscular system in a way that's going to cause you to get injured. When we run too fast on our easy days, when we take our recovery runs too fast, we get hurt plain and simple. And if you're hurt, can't do your consistent aerobic development, you can't get faster. So slow down to stay healthy as well. And this is where I always remind people that you build aerobic capacity in a huge range. And I'm going to talk about some of the rules of thumb for that in a minute. But let's just say for the sake of argument that you build aerobic capacity at a similar level, regardless of where you are in your aerobic capacity building range. So it might be three minutes to four minutes per mile of a range at which if you're running in that range, you're building aerobic capacity in a similar way. And at some point it falls off, sure. But it might be three to four minute range. Why do we insist on hanging out at the faster end of that range? If 
the aerobic capacity benefits are the same throughout the range because I can promise you at the easier efforts, you're putting less stress on the, on the neuromuscular and the musculoskeletal system so that you will stay healthier longer. So hang out in the middle, hang out on the slower end of the ranges. You're getting the same aerobic capacity benefit while also making sure that you stay healthy along the way. So that's number two. We slow down to take pressure off the musculoskeletal system so that we can stay healthy and consistent. Number three, we slow down on easy days so that we can invest more so that we can get the most out of our hard workouts. When you're balancing, when you're polarizing your training enough, going easy enough on your easy days, then I promise you, you will be faster, sharper, more control at pace in your hard workouts. It's hard to understand that and embrace that until you try it, but it's absolutely true. And without fail, I'll hear that from athletes. Oh, wow. I slowed down on my easy days or my recovery days. And suddenly I'm able to not only get the most out of engine building aerobic capacity building, but also get the most out of my engine fine tuning, my workouts. So you end up with the biggest and most finely tuned engine as possible when you need it on race day. So that's number three. By slowing down on easy days, then you can actually get more out of your workouts. And number four, and this is a benefit that I don't think is talked about enough, is that by finding efficiency with your form at slower paces, this helps you become more efficient at faster paces as well. People tell me all the time, I can't go that slow. It's too hard. My body won't let me. Well, I promise you it will if you work on it, but it requires you to work on it. I can comfortably run any pace, any pace, you know, within the ranges of my talent level. I can run six minute miles in workouts. I can slow down and run 14 minute miles on easy days. I can hang with anybody and I can do it comfortably. Doesn't feel awkward doesn't feel strange. It feels right. And it feels amazing, by the way, when you slow down on easy days and it feels good and you find that efficient pattern. But that hasn't come naturally. When I first started training for races, I was running too fast all the time. Ended up with a stress fracture for training for my first marathon. Broke myself. This would have been in the year 2000. And that's what prompted me to figure out how to coach was because I wanted to get it right for my own training. And, and that injury was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. It changed the course of my entire life. And as a part of my coaching and running journey, I've embraced this principle to the extreme. I believe I've talked about this before, but when my wife was pregnant with our first, especially she ran through her whole pregnancy and I would do my easy days, my recovery days with her. And we would, start out at a certain pace early in pregnancy and ultimately we're at a really, really glacially slow waddle of sorts, shuffle jog, whatever you want to call it, as she was in her later weeks of that pregnancy. And I ended up with a marathon PR during that cycle because I embraced and fully understood what it was like to go easy on my easy days. And as a part of that, learn to be efficient at slower paces because what's happening we're naturally efficient 
at faster paces. Our body tends to work that way. Or when we run fast, we tend to be more efficient. When we run easy or slower, if we're inefficient, then from my perspective as a coach, then that shines a spotlight or highlights an area of inefficiency that we're unaware of when running faster because of the natural efficiency that comes with running faster. So your, your blind spots are all there. And those blind spots come out, those inefficiencies come out when you're running easy because it's not as natural, it's not as smooth. And so if you can work through that, and it takes time, but if you can work through that and have the patience to do it, then I promise you it will make you more efficient, smoother, and ultimately faster at faster paces as well. So that's the fourth reason to do it, the one, one that's not talked about as often. So what does it mean to run easy on your easy days? We talked a little bit about this last week. I want to talk about it in a little bit more depth now and give you some rules of thumb that I've given before. So let's talk about, we talked about the why, let's talk about the how. One of the things that I always get with this is people want to know, well, what paces should I be running on easy runs? And of course, I will give you rules of thumb there. But I want to make sure that you hear me clearly when I say that pace actually doesn't matter. I give you rules of thumb to help you understand, am I in the right general zone? And in particular, to highlight the fact that most of the time people need to be going slower than they are. But pace isn't actually what matters here. What matters is effort. Effort is king. Running at easy effort is more important than what pace you're running. So above all, your easy runs should be at a conversational pace, meaning you can speak in full sentences comfortably while doing them. We call this the talk test. And this isn't, oh, I can get out a sentence here or there and then have to catch my breath. This is I can have a full-on conversation with somebody else without having to pause to catch my breath. I'm running that easy. If you can't do that, then you should be walking or you should alternate walk running in order to make sure you're in the right zone. Otherwise, you should be running at a pace that's easy enough in order to get to that effort zone. Because effort's key. Pace doesn't really matter. It's am I in the right effort zone in order to build aerobic capacity? That's the number one thing that matters. If the effort's wrong, then you're not getting the right aerobic capacity building benefit. And there's some interesting implications of that concept. One of the implications is that that effort might result in different paces on different days. And we always want to try to measure ourselves by pace, particularly in this Garmin and Strava and Koros world, but that's not how it works. Is the effort right? And on a given day, that effort might vary depending on a lot of things, depending on the workout that you did the day before, depending on how much sleep you got, depending on how much stress you have, depending on what the weather is on a given day, that pace is going to vary perhaps wildly. 
And as long as the effort is right, the talk test is passed, then all of those runs could be considered equivalent benefit. So to give a specific example, in the summers here, it's hot, it's humid. Oftentimes, you may you have to run 30 seconds up to a minute per mile slower than you might run in the winter in cooler temperatures in order to maintain the right effort, in order to make sure that talk test is passed. Are those runs better or worse for you from an aerobic capacity building standpoint? No. Just because you're running 30 seconds slower in the summer in order to maintain the same effort doesn't mean that run is a lesser run. We want to measure ourselves by the pace on our watch, but you should not be measuring yourself based on pace on easy days. Yes, use pace as a rule of thumb to make sure you're triangulating around an effort that's right to help calibrate your own internal barometer about the right effort, but do not measure yourself based on pace. So implication one there is that as long as the effort's equivalent, you could have two different pace days and still get the same benefit. The other implication of that is that you shouldn't measure yourself based on pace. I have people tell me all the time, well, I ran this long run at X pace faster than last week. I don't care. That's not a measurement for success on your easy days. You running faster than last week might actually be a measurement for failure. If the effort's not right. So stop measuring yourself on your easy days by how fast you run them. Instead, ask yourself, was my effort right? Was it easy enough? Because that gets me to the third implication, which is that your easy runs should be performed in a way that has you feeling pretty good at the end. Somebody shared on Instagram, a listener this week about recovery runs where it's more about, do I feel better at the end of a recovery run than it is about my pace on that recovery run? Absolutely. Yes. Check that box. Did I go slow enough to feel better at the end on a recovery day? That is how we measure recovery days. On other easy days, on long runs, you don't want to finish feeling like you're going to die. You want to finish feeling pretty good, feeling strong. And yeah, you might be tired. Your legs might be a little beat up, especially for those marathon runners out there. But you should still feel pretty good. And if you don't, could be a sign that you're consistently running too fast on those easy days. So remember, effort is what matters more than anything else. Hone in on that. Develop your running intuition, as I talked about in episode 304. Okay, so effort is king. So here, let's talk about some rules of thumb just to remind you of these, just to make sure, again, that you're in the right ballpark in terms of effort. So rules of thumb on easy runs, including, again, easy long runs. They should be done at least a minute per mile slower than marathon pace or 90 seconds per mile slower than half marathon pace or slower. Recovery runs, I like to see those done at two minutes per mile slower than marathon pace or two and a half minutes per mile slower than half marathon pace or slower. And I want to highlight and underscore the 
or slower part of that equation. Because again, we're talking about a huge range at which you develop aerobic capacity. The reason recovery runs are at a different part of the range is because you have some musculoskeletal trauma that you're trying to work through on recovery days. And so the aerobic capacity building benefit between recovery days and easy days as determined by this rule of thumb, these rules of thumb might not be different, but the musculoskeletal risk and impact is going to be different if you're running one minute slower or versus two minutes slower. And so the reason I gave you that guideline on recovery runs is to push you more towards the middle to the back of the range than where you should be on the front of the range. And again, these are rules of thumb. Talk to us still matters the most. But what I want you to think about and remember is that you will build aerobic capacity in the right zone at a range of one to three, maybe even for some four minutes slower than marathon pace. And that aerobic capacity benefit is very similar along that entire chain. And so you have a huge and massive flexibility to work with in order to achieve the same effort-based benefit without tasking the musculoskeletal system. So when people want to press the top end of the range and or ask me if they can even fudge the top end of the range, then my question is why? Why would you do that? Why would you push the limit? Why would you push the edge? Because as you start to push the edge or bump up against paces that are slightly faster than these rules of thumb, then two things are happening. One, you risk slipping outside of the correct aerobic capacity building zone. And two, you risk musculoskeletal injury. Why would you want to take those risks? Why would you want to take wasting miles as a potential risk? If you could just slow down, enjoy it, slide comfortably into that range somewhere, minute, minute and a half slower than target pace on most easy days, two, two and a half minutes at least slower than target pace on recovery days, slide into those zones comfortably so that you can keep plenty of space between you and shifting out of the aerobic capacity building zone and between you and potentially getting injury. Because if you do that and you do it patiently and you do it consistently, then again, you're going to be adding cylinders, constantly adding cylinders, and you're going to be healthy enough to keep adding cylinders. And I guarantee you, if you're healthy and you're training consistently in a mostly healthy way, You're going to have more cylinders faster than the next person, and you're going to ultimately reach your potential in a much more direct path than if you're constantly playing with fire, bumping up against the edge. So those are rules of thumb. Another rule of thumb gets to heart rate. That one's a little bit trickier because everybody's different from a heart rate perspective, but 180 minus your age as a max heart rate on easy runs is a decent rule of thumb. I would say I don't like that rule of thumb as well as I like the pace rules of thumb, but that is another way to triangulate around. Is my heart rate low enough on easy days? For me, I'm 
43 years of age. So that would be 137 as a max heart rate on my easy days. That would be the upper limit I would want to see in order to make sure that my effort is easy enough. But frankly, most of the time, I don't want it much lower than that. On recovery days, I like to see it in the 115 to 125 range, and then probably 125 to 135 on other easy days. So that's another way to look at it. Now, let me get to my last point here, which Lori made my sister in the episode where she talked about qualifying for Boston. And one of the things that we talked about on that episode was this idea that your easy paces don't necessarily change that much over time. Again, we always want to use easy paces, some sort of metric of success or some barometer of results. But ultimately, what matters most is race results if you're racing for time. And I submit that for the most part, if you're doing the right things on your easy runs and especially your recovery runs, that those paces won't change that much. And in some cases, because you're learning, they might actually get slower while your race paces are dramatically getting faster. So don't necessarily expect dramatic changes in your easy run paces as your race results are soaring. And in fact, I could say for me, as somebody who's been doing this for a long time, my recovery runs in particular are probably as slow as they've ever been, even though I have aspirations to still smash that big goal of mine to run under two hours and 40 minutes. And I don't have a plan to change that because, again, on those easy days, it's not about how fast you run. It's about are you in the right effort zone to build aerobic capacity in the way you need to to be your fastest self when you have to be on workouts and when you have to be on race day. So don't use that as a barometer for success in the near term or necessarily in the long term. Certainly, if you're seeing step change improvements in race times, typically you will see those easy run paces gradually come down a little bit. But but again, because success happens in a broad range on those easy days, you won't necessarily see big changes to that over time. So don't expect it. Instead, ask yourself, is my effort right? Am I going easy enough? If the answer is yes, then you're doing the right things in order to be your fastest self. So there you go. Full stop. The definitive episode on easy running. Embrace it. Learn it. Internalize it. Tell all your friends. This is the key to getting your best self on race day. Full stop. All right, we'll wrap this one here. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.